prayer's easy, isn't it? I mean, if I went round, had a quick chat with you all about how your praying's going these days, be success stories all around. Prayer's just one of the most natural things in the world, comes, comes so easily to all of us. Uh, we all know what to pray, when to pray it, and for whom to pray it. Um, so maybe I should just sit down and... Or maybe if I did go round and get a chance to talk with you and, and you had a chance to talk with me, we'd discover something quite different. We'd discover that prayer is extremely difficult for most of us. That we find it difficult to pray regularly and to pray well. We find it difficult to know whom to pray for and what to pray for them. If that's the case, it might be interesting to see what Jesus would pray for his friends on the night before he's betrayed. Let's have a look together at these first verses of John chapter 17. Jesus has finished teaching his disciples. That's what he's been doing in the last chapters, and that's what we have been learning uh, about in these last weeks. Sorry, we're on page 1085. It would be very useful for you to have that open because it's in some parts quite a complicated passage. Jesus has been teaching his disciples, but now he, he's finished teaching. Although Jesus is still speaking, the mode now is very different because he prays for them. So the very last thing recorded for us in John's gospel that Jesus does with his disciples before he is betrayed and goes to the cross is that he prays for them. Now, the gospel writers often tell us about Jesus praying, but it's a wee bit frustrating because they don't usually tell us what he's praying. And when they do, it's usually only a wee snippet. So here in John 17, we have a remarkable exception. Here, Jesus prays at some length. And for once, he's not on his own. There are witnesses there. So we have it recorded for us in John's gospel. To me, that sounds like a wonderful opportunity. Imagine hearing Jesus pray. The NIV splits Jesus' prayer into three sections. Jesus prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and finally he prays for all believers. In some ways, that's not a perfect way of splitting up this chapter, but it's one that we'll make do with that division, and we're going to try and look at the first couple of sections this evening. Let's begin with the first section, verses 1 to 5. Jesus prays for himself. We're going to look quickly at what he prays and then why he prays that. Firstly, what did Jesus pray? Look at verses 1 and 5. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And then verse 5. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. In a word, Jesus prays for glory. Jesus has been talking about the time or the hour that's been coming, and he's talked about that over and over again in John's gospel. And at last, he says, the time has come. It's the time when he's going to suffer at the hands of the Roman authorities. It's the time when he is going to die on a cross on the hill of the skull. It's the time when he's going to be buried in a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It's a time when he will for three days be dead, 
the time when he will rise again and the time when he'll ultimately be taken to his Father's right hand in heaven. That's what time it is. It's that time. The time has come. Now that the time has come, Jesus prays a particular thing. He wants the Father to glorify him. And in particular, he's asking the Father to bring him back to his right-hand side of heaven and glorify him with the glory that he had before the world began. It's not the first time, actually, that Jesus has talked about being glorified. Just four or five days earlier, some Greek visitors in Jerusalem came to see Jesus, and he said this to them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus, again, is talking about being glorified. But in this context, he's not talking about going to his Father's right hand in heaven. He's talking about being glorified on the cross. My friends, it's important that we understand that both of these moments contribute to the glory of Jesus Christ. The cross, every bit as much as his ascension and his returning to his Father's right-hand side. To the men of Jesus' day, the cross was the ultimate symbol of shame, of defeat, of degradation. To Jesus, he says it's the place where he's going to be glorified. In that moment, when his back has been torn to shreds on account of his flogging, then says Jesus, I will be glorified. It's here when he has four-inch thorns pressing down into his skull. It's here, he says, that he'll be glorified. It's here when his naked, bloody body is nailed to a ten-foot rough wooden cross and hoisted into the air for all to see, to ridicule and deride. It's here he says that he'd be glorified. It's here that we see the king in all his glory because we see his love. Friends, we see God more clearly on the cross than we've ever seen him before. This is, this is what we call the foolishness of the cross this is what we call the stumbling block of Christianity, that that man nailed to the cross is our God. We call him God. And we say that's his glory. That moment is his crowning glory, that he's enthroned, that he's Lord of all. Friends, on the cross we see the glory of God because we see how far he will go for us. Jesus prays for glory in verses 1 and 5. 
In verses 2 to 4, we get a bit of an insight into why he prays for that glory. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Jesus is talking here about a decision that the Father made in eternity past. That decision was to give authority over all people to Jesus Christ and to do so on the basis of his death, his resurrection, and his rising again to glory in heaven. That's exactly what Paul tells us in Philippians. He says, Jesus Christ became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because he did that, he is exalted. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. It's because Jesus willingly suffers and dies that the Father exalts him, glorifies him, and gives him authority over all the people of the earth. Why did God choose to give this authority to Jesus? Look again at verse 2. You granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Only Jesus can give eternal life. Only he can give it because he is the one who paid the price of sin. He is the one who's conquered death. If it weren't for the cross and if it weren't for the resurrection, there could be no eternal life. If it wasn't for the work of Jesus, you and I would not be forgiven. The Lamb of God would not have taken the sins of the world. God gives Jesus authority over all people so that he can give eternal life to those the Father's given him. In verse 3, Jesus says something surprising, and I do want to, to pick up on this. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I think we do need to slow down for a second here. Does Jesus' definition of eternal life surprise you? If we're honest, I think it probably does. For most of our lives, we've been taught that eternal life is one of those goodies that you get for trusting in Jesus. When we're saved, Jesus gives us eternal life, something to look forward to when we die. It's another life. It's a life unlike this one. And it's a life that begins when we die and goes on, as the name suggests, forever beyond the ravages of time. But friends, that's not what Jesus means when he talks about eternal life. For him, eternal life isn't simply an endless quantity of life when we die. It's a life of unsurpassable quality that begins while we live. It's to know God. Friends, when we know God, we begin eternal life. It's a life it's a life unimaginable to those who don't, don't yet see it, who don't yet know God. 
Friends, my eternal life has already begun. I sometimes share this with people when I'm leading at a funeral. I'm not waiting for God to give me eternal life, hoping that he will when I die. No. I'm already living a life so rich in quality, the life of God that I know it's a life that will go through my, my death, my burial or cremation or whatever it happens to be. It's the life of God in me eternal life, knowing God. Many of us here are already living that life. Friends, it's a life of such quality. Yes, it is going to go on forever, but that's, that's only part of it. That's only the half of it. In verse 3, Jesus makes it clear how we enter into that eternal life. It's the knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You can't know God, says Jesus, unless you know me. I'm the one who came. I've made God known. Know me. Know God. And have eternal life. Let's quickly wrap up this first part of Jesus' prayer. The NIV title and the title we've been running with this evening is that Jesus prays for himself. But actually, I would say, now that we've had a look at it, we'd want to reevaluate that a wee bit. If Jesus prays for himself at all here, it's only in a very limited sense. He prays that he would have glory, but only the glory that the Father always intended for him to have from before the beginning of time. All that Jesus is praying here is that what God had always intended would be done. Jesus is really praying in more detail a prayer that we've heard him pray before. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If Jesus is praying for himself, it's only that God's will and purpose be done in his life that his life would be a vehicle for the glory of God. It's interesting, isn't it, to contrast that with the way I might pray for myself or, or you might pray for yourself. What do we pray about when we pray for ourselves? Our health, our relationships. We pray about jobs financial pressures. We pray for guidance when we're faced with difficult decisions or, or problems. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think all of those prayers are great, and we need to keep praying those. We need to keep relying on God. But all of those prayers fall way short of this wonderful model of prayer that we see here with Jesus. Jesus' chief concern is that God would be glorified in his life. Now, if anyone ever had a reason to pray for God about his immediate pressing issues, it was Jesus, and it was now. He knows that as he's praying, the Roman guard are on the way. He knows that in a matter of hours, he will be subject to a miscarriage of justice, the like of which you'd rarely see. He knows that he's about to be tortured and crucified. If ever the circumstances were pressing, these are. But Jesus 
pray simply, glorify me with the glory I had before the world began. Lord, do the work in me that you've always intended. In effect, Jesus is praying, thy will be done in my life as in heaven. Friends, there's no better prayer we can pray for ourselves. Your will be done in me. Let's spend the last few minutes of our time much, much more quickly looking at the Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Uh, we'll, we'll finish this section this evening, so I'll have to warn you, this is going to happen pretty quickly. In verses 6 to 10, Jesus really just identifies those disciples for whom he's actually praying, and I'm not going to spend much time in this. Three things, three ways in which he identifies them. True disciples of Jesus are those who recognize that he is God among them. He's the revelation of the Father. Secondly, true disciples of Jesus do what he says. And thirdly, in verse 9, true disciples of Jesus don't belong to this world. Jesus quickly uh, identifies these men for whom he's praying. But then he prays for them three things. And with this, we'll finish this evening very, very quickly. He prays their protection, their joy, and their sanctification. First of all, he prays for their protection. He prays that the Father would protect them from disunity. Look at verse 11. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Now, it's important to notice something here. Jesus isn't just praying, give them unity. That's, that's not what he's praying. He's not asking the Father to draw them together. He's praying something slightly different. He's saying, protect them from the things that would take away their unity. If you've been in church for any time at all or any other Christian group, you'll know that there are always forces at work ready to drive us apart. You'll know as well that that's particularly the case in a place where God is clearly at work. I suspect that Satan doesn't bother trying to wreak havoc or, or cause disunity in a community where nothing's happening. Why would he? Let them go their merry way. But in a place where God is clearly at work, this is so common and so prevalent. Just that, that subtle uh, ploy to bring disunity into our community. It struck me as a, I was thinking about this, we need to be so conscious of that here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. God has done things here that have surprised us. Uh, we're astounded, some of us. But how do we respond to that? Well, I, I think the suggestion here is that we need to be careful of disunity. We need to be aware of it ourselves, but we also need to be prayerful that God would keep disunity from our door. And if we see even a hint of it, we need to act to, to close it off, and we need again to be humbly prayerful to God. Lord, protect us from those things that would, would drive us apart, those factious things, those divisive things.
Second thing that Jesus prays for in regard to protection is protection against the evil one. Look at verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus doesn't want to take us out of this world. If there's something that we in the church need to understand, we need to understand this. There is no other place to live for Jesus Christ than here and now, this place where he's called us to. There isn't going to be anywhere else. Let's not wait for it. Let's not hanker after it. Now, in 2006, in East Belfast, is the place where God wants us to serve him. And there'll be troubles in that context. Jesus wants us not to be protected from those troubles, but he does want us to be protected from the evil one. Friends, persecution's one thing. I don't think we can expect to live for Jesus without persecution, but the prayer of Jesus indicates that we can pray for God's protection against Satan, against the evil one, that personal force of Satan that is dead set against us. So those, those two aspects, but the one prayer, Jesus prays for his disciples' protection. Very, very quickly, the second thing he prays for is their joy. Look at verse 13. I'm coming to you now, Jesus prays to the Father, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. There's not a lot of joy here. Jesus has told these disciples that he's going to die, that they're going to be separated from him, and yet he's still praying that they would have joy. What's the joy that he's talking about? Well, in the future, the disciples are going to realize that everything that Jesus has taught them, everything that he's talked about, and everything that he's praying here was true. They're going to discover that as implausible at this, as this looks just at the moment, Jesus really was the Messiah and that he really is going to stay with them by his spirit, that he's going to protect them from disunity and from the evil one. And one thing that struck me, remembering this prayer, remembering that Jesus had prayed all of this for them, that he had prayed their joy is only just going to increase the, their trust in God. They'll look back on that night and they'll say, do you remember the night that Jesus prayed our protection, that we would have unity, our protection from, from the attacks of the evil one? Well, we're experiencing that protection and that fills us with joy. It fills us with gratitude. It fills us with hope for our future. So Jesus prays for their joy. And the last thing Jesus prays for his disciples is their sanctification. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. To be sanctified here just simply means to be set apart for God's purposes. And Jesus does an interesting thing. He, he says here that he has been sanctified. He has been set apart for God's purposes. Now, Jesus had a very, very unique 
purpose to fulfill. His purpose was to come to live in our world and to die redemptively for the sins of the world. Jesus has fulfilled God's purposes, the purpose for which he was sanctified. But now he says something. He says, as I've been sanctified, sanctify them. As I've been sent into the world, now send them into the world. Friends, Jesus' prayer for us is very simply this. For every one of us who trusts in Jesus Christ, he wants us to be set apart for God. To be set apart with that same sense of purpose that he had coming into our world. Our purpose, though, is different, isn't it? We don't come to to die on the cross that people would be forgiven their sins. We come and we live our lives with one purpose, and that's to point people to Jesus, the one who has died on the cross, the one through whom their sins can be forgiven, the one who promises them a new life empowered by his Spirit. Lord, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them. Friends, what do you pray for when you pray for yourself? Do you pray for health, for wealth, and success, and for ease? Jesus prayed that God's will would be done in his life. Friends, what do you pray for when you pray for those around you? Do you pray for their health and their wealth and their success? Or do you pray that they would be protected that God would keep his hand over them and protect them from the attacks of the evil one? Do you pray that they would find deep and real joy as they know more of God's work in them? And do you pray that they would be sanctified, that they would know God's calling on their life, that sense of purpose that belongs to everyone who is in Christ? Friends, as we have listened to Jesus pray for himself and for his disciples, let's learn, learn to pray as he prayed. Let's pray. Father God, as we hold in the one hands our own prayers, those petitions that we sporadically bring to you, and we look at them in the light of Jesus' prayer. Lord, we see how even our best intentions and our warmest desires fall short of your glory. Lord, help us to pray these kind of prayers for ourselves. 
Lord, that your glory in us would mean so much more to us than the ease of our lives or our health or our well-being. Lord, that we would be satisfied only when we know that we have opened our lives to you, that you are working in us and that your glory be revealed in us. Lord, as we pray for our friends, Lord, help us to pray for more than than well-being and ease. Help us to pray that the presence of your Spirit in them would protect them, that you would keep them from Satan's attacks. Lord, help us to pray that they would know deep and real joy despite the troubles that this life brings them. Lord, help us to pray that they would know your calling in their lives, that nothing would be nearer or dearer to them than the call to follow Jesus and make him known in this world. Lord, teach us to pray. We pray that in Jesus' name, who prayed for us. Amen.